under the old regime, care was very fragmented. So I had to go and advocate on behalf of my son to, you know, 10, 15 different agencies and get little pockets of money from here, there and everywhere. And I had to cobble it all together to get a, um, a working, you know, life for him and us. You had to beg, absolutely beg on your knees for every little bit. Welcome to Pomegranate, a CPD podcast from the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. In this episode, we look at the National Disability Insurance Scheme, designed to provide better care for the 460,000 Australians who have significant and permanent disability. The NDIS supports individuals in making personalised therapy goals, accessing appropriate care and participating in mainstream life. Since 2013, the scheme has had a staged launch across parts of Australia. This month, the NDIS will start rolling out in New South Wales and Victoria and will have complete coverage by 2019. Today, rehab physician Dr Elizabeth Thompson shares the hopes her Sydney clients have for the personal funding. Kerry O'Kane talks of her relief at having found a secure future of care for her son when the NDIS reached the ACT. And Dr Catherine Langdon describes the impact the scheme has had for paediatric therapy models in Perth. But first, to explain how the NDIS differs from past disability services, Dr Robin Wallace of Calvary Hospital in Hobart. From what I've seen in Tasmania, it's revolutionised in a very positive manner the lives of people with intellectual disability and developmental disability. The general principles of this service the NDIS, is to provide reasonable and necessary supports for people with disability so that they can, first of all, make their own goals, set them out themselves with their family perhaps, and to be included in the community as fully participating citizens to the extent of their ability. Previously, disability service providers were were block-funded It's like if you went to Coles and uh, the lady at the checkout said, well, here's your groceries for the week. And I say, well, I don't like um, pumpkin, but too bad, it's given to you. And families and uh, on behalf of their sons and daughters were too frightened to say anything if they weren't happy in case they were kicked out. Whereas in this model, using that same analogy, I'm, I'm going and I'm doing my own shopping. The whole revolution of this service is that it is person-centred. The money is with the individual, the participant, and the service providers are paid like a private practice, a fee for service. So uh, this in Tasmania is leading to to great changes with uh, service providers becoming a lot smarter business-wise, a lot snappier, and uh, there's now competition, and I think the quality has gone up significantly. One of my clients is very keen to purchase a new wheelchair with uh, certain colouring and modifications that are important for this person that wouldn't necessarily have been funded under the old scheme. The NDIS isn't about funding all the bells and whistles, but at the end of the day, sometimes 
those bells and whistles might actually improve and enhance social inclusion and the person's ability to function and that can be seen as vitally important. I'm Liz Thompson, I'm a rehab physician looking uh, a lot of the time at clients with intellectual disability and complex care needs over a long period of time. For those clients, quite often we need to consider whole of life aspects such as their footwear through to their continence aids, um, including helmets for epilepsy, those kind of things. What we don't often do well is look at social inclusion opportunities and the ability to interact more meaningfully with society. Many of my clients are exceedingly excited about the opportunity NDIS presents for further funding of speech therapy, for instance. Accessing speech pathology services under our current model of funding can be quite difficult. Uh, often people are restricted to an enhanced primary care plan, which offers five allied health sessions. And most of my patients who have not been on addict books before face up to two years waiting list. Speech therapy is often considered an acute concern if someone has a swallow disorder in order to protect their chest. And then any further aspect of speech pathology is often downgraded and not classed as, as important, especially in outpatient settings. Um, as communication is such a vital part of being a human, we often forget for someone who's severely disabled that they might be able to learn new techniques or respond to new technology in a good way. Uh, that's the opportunity to pay for therapy. Um, with NDIS support funds is something they are so keen for. It's, it's very inspiring to see this plan for further self-development and hope for further improvement in their skills, even when they're of an older age. The decision behind what gets accepted and what doesn't get accepted and what's able to be appealed under the NDIS funding appears to be largely based on the assessor that's present during the assessment period. So there have been stories of clients with similar care needs coming out with quite different care plans and funding structures. So a number of my clients have concerns that they might not have the right ability to advocate for themselves. And so that's certainly something we can help pre-plan by assisting them with consideration of what they might need to improve their functional outcomes, such as podiatry, care, appropriate footwear, etc because it increases their opportunities to have more social inclusion. In terms of rehab medicine's approach to our patients, I don't think there's any urgency to change the way we structure our reports. However, there have been some reports from Newcastle that increased transparency in medical reports is required, such as using more basic language or defining why certain measures are required. So I'm Kerry O'Kane, I live in Canberra, I'm the mother of three children. Our middle child is Callum Bradley and he has Angelman syndrome and that causes a lot of various uh, disabilities, the main one being a complete absence of speech, uh, intellectual disability, uh, he can walk but not very well, he has a balance disorder. He has uh, epilepsy, he has eating difficulties, but I think a lot of people have in their mind the image of a disabled person is a frail person, whereas Callum is extremely strong. So uh, in his, the caring duties are a little bit more strenuous because we're trying to change nappies and get him dressed 
and feed him, but he has the strength of a 25-year-old man. Something that marks the syndrome is that they're very hyperactive and they're in constant movement and motion so that um, you have to be aware of when they're awake, which is most of the time because they don't sleep very much, you have to be aware of where they are and what they're doing. And uh, we had a in our house, uh, we had gates all through the house, so we had a gate into the kitchen because he'd just wander in when he got older and turn the hot plates on and then just fiddle with the dials and walk out and all the hot plates would be on or he could burn himself. And, you know, he's quite ingenious. He'll use what means he's got, which are very limited, to communicate. So he used to do bizarre things with TVs. So he loved TVs, but he didn't know how to change the channel. And um, he knew that if he threw a transistor radio on the floor the station would change. So he applied that logic to a TV and if he didn't like what was on TV, he would throw it on the floor. So we just went through a bad patch there where he smashed about three or four TVs. Yes, so my husband's in his mid-60s and uh, I'm nearly 60 and we wanted to have Callum settled in his own place because his whole life... And his regime was dependent on the continuing health of my husband and I. Uh, we'd had an incident about five years ago where my husband had to have reconstructive shoulder surgery and, and immediately that day Callum had to go into respite and had to stay there for six months and it was an awful experience. Just the suddenness and, and the upheaval for him was unsatisfactory. What the NDIS provided was uh, at the money to allow him to have carers um, overnight. But at the other end, uh, it was reasonably difficult or required uh, argument and some advocacy that he needed one-on-one care because one-on-one care, as you can appreciate, is extremely expensive. And unfortunately, something that exists in the previous schemes still holds, which is that in order to get the funding that you require for your child, sometimes you have to paint quite a a bleak picture. And that's always tears at the hearts of parents because you feel like you're betraying the person you love because you know them to be a loving, generous, beautiful person. But you have to say, well, yes, here's an incident report where our son scratched the corneas of another boy and he had to be taken to hospital. But our son was only trying to communicate. But uh, you, you pull these terrible things out, these bad examples, in order to justify why, for instance, you need uh, expensive one-on-one care to, to supervise and, and assist your child. The first couple of times we we had respite, we just went to bed and slept for 10, 12 hours. Yes, we just slept. The closest analogy I can think of in those years was that type of fight or flight that soldiers experience where you'd never actually sleep. You're sort of waiting for an event. So uh, we didn't sleep properly for probably 10 years, I'd say maybe longer, maybe 20 years. 
and and sometimes I had a rule of thumb that if I had less than three hours sleep, I, I used my sick leave and didn't go to work. But apart from that, I held on to my job with my fingers and toes. Um, and in the early days, you could use respite to go to a knitting class or something like that, but you couldn't use it to go to work. So someone had made a, a policy judgment that parents of disabled children shouldn't work. They should give up their lives be the martyr model. So I didn't comply with the martyr model. And under the old regime, care was very fragmented. So I had to go and advocate on behalf of my son to, you know, 10, 15 different agencies and get little pockets of money from here, there and everywhere. And I had to cobble it all together to get a, um, a working, you know, life for him and us. You had to beg absolutely big on your knees for every little bit that you got and so I was sort of hard bitten cynical very jaded but I did understand from the outset that the NDIS was a national initiative and you immediately were struck by the fairness of that and uh, I am very positive about the scheme it was it was a great result and it's um, it's going to be great for a lot of people I'm Dr Catherine Langdon, paediatrician and rehab consultant working at Princess Margaret Hospital. So in Western Australia, we have been involved with the NDAS for about two years. And it's been interesting because those areas have now really developed as hubs with really quite innovative programs and a very different model of care of therapy. You can really feel that the wheels of motion are really starting to get going now. Um, at Princess Margaret. We would certainly like to provide a more tertiary level therapy using blocks of therapy as a more intensive rehabilitation. In addition to that, though, I think there's also a need for a long-term set of goals, the more community-based therapy that can be delivered by parents in their own home um, so that activities of daily living, communication, mobility are all kind of moving along in the background because I think sometimes the intensive bursts, you know, the, the children have to be actively engaged in the therapy. If they're just passively being taken along to the therapy session but don't really know what the whole point of it is, the benefits are not likely to be as um, significant. So I think the two therapy deliveries are quite differently organised. But I can see that something of that sort will be offered more frequently by the NDIS. But it is a model that definitely works. And it does give kids an opportunity to get an intensity and frequency of therapy that gives them really good insight in what they may be capable of. One of the processes that we go through is to find out where the family live. And in, in Perth, of course, that means that they may or may not fall into an NDIS catchment area or they may be in one of the areas still being provided by block-funded um, community therapy providers and they also have the choice of better start funded private practitioners. So there is a lot of complexity at that first point. On that some of the parents are working out that for them taking over the administration of their child's NDIS funding works out better for the child as they reduce the administration cost that is actually subtracted from their child's package. Um, one mother said it probably 
gives her child twice as much therapy. So, um, you know, that is obviously a disadvantage of the system because it's quite complex and some parents are better able to manage that than others. In Western Australia in particular, we have the rural and remote children, I'm not sure, are receiving the benefits of being near these NDIS hubs. But in addition to that, we know that there's a lot of families that are beyond the scope of really engaging in services. And it can also be just very young mothers or English as a second language or unemployment or loss of housing. So there's a whole lot of social issues behind that as well, which really will need to be supported for some of these families. I think it's a a happy chance event really that both um, health approach to early intervention and the NDIS are kind of at a kind of watershed period where early intervention really is identified as, as crucial and beginning at a very early age, not kind of 16 months, but in the first year of life, as soon as there's any kind of sign that a developmental issue or problem may eventuate. As a physician, seeing children from zero up to 16, our role changes a little bit to really understanding a child's function in that school age latency period. And then hopefully the NDIS will provide a bit more stability and help particularly at the adolescent end of the equation because I think that's when the families really feel as if the bottom falls out of the the system for them at present And when the school drops away and the paediatric hospitals drop away, that's when they're really left with the full burden or the full realisation of providing what for their child's needs. My name's Robin Wallace. I'm a physician in internal medicine. So in terms of considering who is eligible for the National Disability Insurance Scheme... First of all, if you're already in disability services and receiving a day service or um, supported employment, that will automatically make you eligible. Uh, There is on the NDIS website uh, a list of people who are very likely to be eligible for the NDIS, and in that is a list of uh, syndromes of intellectual disability. And this has implications for the health sector, because part of this is about learning about disability values, doing, not getting befuddled, fantastic physicians, great training, sometimes just can't see through the disability. Traditionally, at least with adults with intellectual disability, uh, the healthcare has been suboptimal, I must admit that. Um, there's the three or four times more adverse events in the hospital setting, more likely to be given palliative care for a treatable condition, and a life expectancy of up to 20 years younger than their peers without disability. And these adverse events are not due to the disability. The example I've got is um, a 50-year-old with intellectual disability and iron deficiency anemia. Now, the standard practice for any person at 50 with iron deficiency anemia you take a history of, of uh, sources of blood loss. It might be more difficult to obtain that accurate history in a person with intellectual disability. But at the age of 50, you're worried enough to think, OK, I think we need to go to upper and lower endoscopies. But instead, the person with disability was just given iron and left at that. Pr- prior to the NDIS, some patients 
have been very vulnerable in terms of their disability support system. They've been very vulnerable with regard to their health. And I have a patient who's 23. He's got a serious disability. He lives in a rural area and requires 24-hour care. He requires assistance for all of his daily living. But in this case, uh, the gentleman had um, a, a percutaneous gastroenterostomy tube. So he had um, peg feeding. And through his NDIS plan, he was able to access a nurse. And that nurse was able to write out a plan for management of his peg and a crisis plan. What happens if the peg tube breaks? Uh, she was able to write out a plan for the epilepsy and for uh, management of his seating position, um, for his skin care, passive stretching. Some of these other contributions had been provided by doctors, but she was able to draw up a, a program to help support workers. And with that safety in place, he's in now, instead of uh, going to the emergency department six or seven times a year, we haven't had an admission for at least nine months. Robin Wallace, Elizabeth Thompson and Catherine Langdon are members of an RACP working party aiming to support the rollout of the NDIS and improve collaboration between health and disability services. Many thanks to them for their time and to Kerry O'Kane for sharing her personal experiences. The views expressed are their own and may not represent those of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. To learn more about the National Disability Insurance Scheme and its availability in your area, visit the Pomegranate website, racp.edu.au forward slash pomcast. And please join in the conversation using the hashtag RACPpod or email pomcast at racp.edu.au. Pomegranate comes to you from the College's Learning Support Unit. The program is presented by Camille Merchep and this episode was produced by Mick Cavazzini with assistance from Diana Darmody. We hope you can join us again next month. <laughs>